to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to disaster recovery, resilience, business continuity, well-being, emergency management, crisis management, anything that will help you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free, reach out. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Alex Fullick on LinkedIn, so I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. One quick announcement, I will be speaking at the Continuity Insights Conference in Louisville, Kentucky, April 25th to 27th. Fingers crossed, it'll be an in-person event, and I'll get to meet some of you and maybe uh, twist a few arms and get you to come on the show. I've said for uh, quite a while that I would have uh, been speaking, because it's now past tense, presented at the BCI World Conference. And I hoped to be able to get some of those other speakers to come on the show and talk about their subject or or relatable topics. And today, my guest is one of those speakers from BCI World uh, 2021. Speaking on the topic, and I'm really interested on this one, psychology and crisis management, I'd like a welcome to the show, Gavin Freeman. Gavin, welcome. Thanks, Alex. Great to be here. Now, you... I know who you are. I've read your bio and things like that. Um, but literally, we have viewers and listeners around the globe. Can you take a minute or two and talk about yourself, what you do, and how you got into what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm a psychologist by training. I uh, started off my life very, t- took a very different path into psychology and went into sport and performance-based psychology. I'm very fortunate enough to be uh, appointed to and, and part of several Australian Olympic teams working with athletes in the lead up to the games and then performing at the games. Um, And during that time, I was challenged with coming up with the the very first incident management protocol for the Australian Olympic team. This is back many, many years ago. Um, And so I started to develop uh, a process by which coaches would need to be, you know, they would be the first point of contact if something were to go wrong, how we would then escalate that up through to the management and then the overall response. Now, this this is, you know, back prior to 2000. Um, So back then, we didn't have the same level of sophistication, the same level of technology that we have available today. And so at the time then, it was pieces of paper and mobile phones was sort of all we had. We didn't have the luxury of the Zooms and the team meetings we had now. Um, And so we really had to be structured in in how we would go about um, responding to, to any incident. Um, interestingly, though, the work that I did in that, in that incident management process was not too dissimilar to the work that we did with athletes in helping them prepare for the unexpected. Granted, it wasn't a crisis for them, but sometimes it was. They may have fallen in, a, in their first run and they only had their second run to perform. Um, so for them, different form of a crisis process, um, but obviously that same kind of mindset that goes into managing through uh, an event that was, you know, whether it was unintended or unpredicted or something that just really happened out of the blue. So that's where it all started. 
Um, I've written a few books along the way, and then I've now my business now focuses primarily on crisis management. But high, at, at, the, at the CEO and the C-suite level, is how CEOs and and their executive teams are responding. Um, but then also looking how we unpack that into the development of their strategy and how they roll their strategy out through the business so that it, that it can encompass any of these types of events to ensure that they can maintain not just the continuity of the business, because that's one angle, but also the trust within their organization and in their wider community and their market. And for me, trust is probably the most powerful emotion that we have when it comes to any form of, of crisis management, because any decision you make has to engender or foster trust in the people that you're making the decision with or the people that you're making the decision for. Um, and so that's kind of where I am now. I'm based here in Melbourne, Australia, tend to work uh, with companies all over the world, providing insight, guidance, training, um, simulations, uh, and, and you know, development of, of all things around crisis and strategy management. Melbourne is the one city in Australia I still need to get to. Brisbane, Sydney, and uh, Gold Coast, and a few other places, two or three times, but I still haven't made it over to uh, Melbourne yet. <laughs> Unfortunately, in 2021, we're also known as this, the most lockdown city in the world. Yeah, most, I heard. It's been an interesting insight around the psychology of locking down a city for a long period of time. The way our clients have responded in Melbourne, as opposed to the way our clients have say, responded in, in Perth, or Singapore, or London, or New York, um, we, we've seen quite significant differences and reactions of the people, but also the business and the way the market or the community has responded to said business has been quite different. So it's almost been like its own little control group looking at Melbourne businesses compared to, you know, our New York clients and our London or Singapore clients. Right. Well, welcome to the show. I'm happy to have you here. And uh, I, uh, considering the topics of well-being uh, and mental health happening right now. I think uh, psychology and crisis management is a really uh, interesting topic that's going to help link some of these things together, I think, at some point. Absolutely. So let's jump in uh, with your presentation from BCI. You started off talking about uh, an incident, actually, in uh, Australia. Uh, I'm not going to give any, anything away. I'll let you uh, take yeah. it away and explain the so whole thing. It was, it was really a tragic incident that, that happened and, and without minimising the, the impact of the tragedy, which was absolutely awful. And, and you know, my, my heartfelt thoughts go out to the family, even now, uh, several years down, down the track. Um, we've just actually finished a coronial inquest into the event um, and further lessons where have been learned and, and sort of decisions made by the, by the courts here in Australia. Uh, but for those people um, who may have followed in the news, um, we have a theme park in Australia called Dreamworld. Um, and Dreamworld's like one of those, you know, it's like Disneyland. It's like, you know, it's, it's similar to those. It's got all these great rides on it, family rides as well as the thrill rides. And what was particularly tragic about the event that happened in Dreamworld back in 2016 was that um, there was a tragic event that occurred around what is effectively or was a family ride. It's a ride I've been on with my kids. It's a ride you would take your kids and elderly parents on. It's one of those kind of just chill rides. You're sitting on a sort of a circular boat and you go around in a circle. Unfortunately, when the boat returned back to the, to the main section, um, it malfunctioned and it flipped over. And unfortunately and tragically, four people uh, perished in that event. Um, and so... 
we, we looked at that event and then we started to see how it unfolded. And it, it, as I said, it's less about the event. And it's what I was starting to focus on was the response of the organization, looking at how the parent organization responded, looking at how they, they communicated with the, the, you know, the media and the family at the time. And we got to see some really interesting lessons learned. And, and look, unfortunately, um, and I think history will support the statement that they didn't probably handle it particularly well. Um, there were a number of factors that occurred at the time. So at the almost at the, at the exact same time of the, the event, um, the parent company was going through their annual, uh, their annual general meeting of all their shareholders. And the chair effectively said, well, that was an event, but now we're going to still go and pay all of our CEOs and our directors huge amounts of bonuses. Mm. Um, so there was kind of this disconnect in the language that was coming out by the chair and the CEO of the parent company, as opposed to what we were seeing um, from, uh, from Dreamworld and its CEO and the like. And there was also some really different language that was coming out. So the language that was coming out was clearly being articulated by their legal team, and it was all fixated on the protection of the business. And the, and the, the commentary around the people involved was, was a sec, almost a secondary thought. So it was, we're, you know, we're communicating with the relevant support services. We're working with police. Oh, and, you know, our heartfelt thoughts go out to the family. Clearly the wrong way around. Uh, should have been family first and, uh, and then, you know, do that. There was a particularly nasty incident, not nasty, an unfortunate incident where the, the CEO of the parent company maintained that she had uh, uh, got in contact with the, with the family. Um, this was live on TV during this annual general meeting. And the reporter actually had a family member on the phone saying, I have a family member here and you haven't. So she was caught in uh, a, a little bit of a lie in, in real time. And look, in her, in her defense, not, not to defend her, but in her defense, she maintains that she had attempted to call. But her language was is the point I want to put out here. While she may have attempted to, the language she used was, I have. And so that point I was making before around trust is that when we lose trust, which is what happened in this scenario, we see a significant um, reduction in connection with the company, with connection with the people and belief in what they're saying. And in Australia, and particularly for Arden, which was the parent company, we saw that then reflected in their share price. So within a matter of days of the incident and these follow-up communications that weren't particularly on task, their share price dropped nearly 23%. Um, within the next three months, further communications were made, further insights were developed, further information was, was handed in that sort of highlighted some of their, their poor maintenance practices and you know, other forms of lack of leadership. And we then saw their share price drop a further 30%. So over a period of about three months, their share price plummeted 50%. And, and the point that I want to make out of this, and, I, and I'm now focusing on the, the money side of things, is that that's where we see the impact. Return on, return on investment, shareholder value, um, their shares have never recovered. So, you know, from a high of up in the late high to $2 a share, $2.30, $2.40, I think they're currently trading somewhere, I don't know, I'd need to double check, but I think they're currently trading at around a dollar. Now, you know, they dropped down to, to 97 cents. Um, so, you know, so it's, the, it's that connection. Whereas on the flip side, we did see other events happening where, we saw you know, the, the commentary 
of the CEO or the commentary coming out of the organization um, acknowledged what was going on, took them down a different pathway, and their share price, while dipped as well, you know, picked up uh, significantly. Um, so we see, you know, and sorry, back to Arden, the other thing that, that you know, the ultimate uh, in, and, in and amongst the share price plummeting, you know, income and, and uh, income just obviously bottoming out. Uh, CEO lost her lost her um, position. Uh, the CEO of Dreamworld ultimately resigned as well. So there was significant loss of key personnel um, who had significant years of experience in running sort of businesses. So we're seeing major impacts occurring across the business. And as I said, unfortunately, they've never really um, never really recovered. It's you made a whole bunch of interesting points there. Uh, a couple I just want to touch on. I was always told. Um, in crisis management uh, or communications, never let the lawyers get involved <laughs> when you're talking with with um, mm. any impacted party or the media. Never let the lawyers get involved. And any lawyers listening out there, feel free, send me a letter. I don't care. But because <laughs> this has been told to me the entire time I've been in, you know, uh, business continuity management, etc. Yeah. We use a particular analogy in our business in the way we, we manage help crisis teams manage and we use a, a great little analogy um, it's called prize keep your eye on the prize um, mm -hmm. and we like prize for a number of reasons the very first letter of the acronym p stands for people so when you're keeping your eye on the prize your people are your number one point r stands for reputation i's for it and infrastructure s for sites and e for external third parties and almost when we're looking at crisis communications we're almost using that same protocol you always go out with your message about your people to your people first. Your reputation then becomes secondary. And quite frankly, in communications, you don't communicate a whole lot about infrastructure, sites, uh, and external third parties. But if you wanted to, it's really the bottom. You know, if, you, if your building's going to be closed, it's the it's maybe you know down the bottom of your statement. It's not we're shut in the building. We're communicating with emergency services. You know. Um, oh, and by the way, we're really upset a few people were taken to hospital and are being cared for. It's, it, it's been very clever, not clever, it's been very conscious of the impact and who's listening to your message and people has to come first. There's no, you know, there's no ifs, buts. So I, look, I agree. And I have many legal friends out there. Um, in fact, we're jumping a little bit all over the place. But it's, one thing I would guide organisations to do is it's not to keep the lawyers out. But it's to, enable, it's to use your legal brains to help understand and craft the potential impact of the message. Um, so it's not getting rid of the lawyers, but the lawyers do need to be there, but they need to understand what, the, what they're trying to achieve through messaging. And unfortunately, lawyers tend to operate usually from a always look to protect the business. When, mm -hmm. when a crisis occurs and there's people involved, you're actually looking to protect the people. The business will deal with it afterwards. There are lots of risk mitigation strategies businesses have, notwithstanding insurance policies and the like, um, to deal with that impact after the fact. But look after your people first. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I've um, uh, I remember reading a long time ago uh, something to the effect of uh, I can't remember the exact words, but it said, "If people aren't impacted, is it still a disaster?" Mm. Regardless of what happens. Is it still a disaster if people aren't impacted? You well, know? I think, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because I think um, in this current day and age, 
know, if you look at what's happening, say, with, with Bitcoin, with its, you know, its highs and its lows, and, and when we have a major loss in value and people are losing money, you know, the argument would be, well, is the loss of money going to impact people? And so to your point, yes, it mm -hmm. will be. But yeah. If there's no direct harm to people, then the question becomes a little bit more theoretical in nature because right. how do we cause harm? If, if harm's caused by you've lost your, your savings, then yes, there's, there's harm caused there. So if it's no, maybe not physically harm, but if you, you, know, you can't pay for your, your utilities or your house, um, then that's going to cause harm. So look, I agree with you fundamentally, um, but, but we do see multiples of business crises that occur that indirectly will always impact people. Yeah, yeah, I agreed. Um, one of the other things I, I thought was rather interesting you talked about is the, um, sorry, did you say it was the sharehold, annual shareholders meeting they were mm. having at the time? So uh, with considering the, the terrible nature of what happened and um, people dying and um, all those people that are impacted that uh, were involved, it also look, gives the wrong optics as though you're rewarding bad behavior because they were dishing out all these um, bonuses and things too. So it's like, wait a minute, you just had deaths and now you're rewarding yourself for this? Yeah, their argument at the time, and I do vividly recall these conversations being had, their argument at the time was that they are legislated to have this annual general meeting, right? Under Australian law, under the various regulatory requirements, you're meant to have some of these meetings. I would argue in this current environment, in the environment they were facing at the time, um, had they had they fallen foul of a, you know, we it's called ASIC, which is our uh, regulator that looks after companies. Had they fallen foul of an ASIC rule or the ASIC, well, ASIC is just the, the share price, the ASIC ruling, I'm quietly confident that um, ASIC would have been tolerable of them pushing their, their annual general meeting by you know, a couple of days, a couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> yes, they, they may have fallen foul of the law per se, but, uh, you know, what we do also recognise is that when these events happen to the level that they happen at, um, we also need to take into account the, you know, the potential impact of not having the annual general meeting versus having it and doing what they did as opposed to not having it and feeling the wrath of, you know, the yeah. fine incurred by not having an annual general meeting in time. You know, if I was guiding them now, I would say to them, whatever fine you get from ASIC will pale in comparison to the fine yeah. that the public will give you based on your actions now. So yeah. that'd be, that would have been my guidance. I wasn't there, but that would have been my guidance at the time. Yeah, and, it, you know, four deaths is an extenuating circumstance. You know, that's that's out of the ordinary. That's something that, you know, hey, we're, we're putting things on hold because you're right. You know, if I was dealing with that organization or I wanted to go there because before we started recording, I said I knew where this was and I've actually driven past it and I wanted to go there. But now the next time I'm in Australia, I think it'll be the third or fourth time, I'll, if I'm driving down that highway and I see it again, what am I going to think? Yeah, you know, and it's taken a long time. It really has taken a long time. I mean, they made some other really interesting decisions. So I'm giving these because it's always because when we get into the point around, you know, the way the brain operates and the decisions we make, I made some other really interesting decisions. So the, the, the accident occurred on the 25th of, uh, of October. I don't know why and I don't understand it, but they decided they were going to reopen on the 28th three days after a, a, a death, which was never going to happen. I mean, and look, 
their argument, not their argument, their perspective was, we want to open it up and we want to um, recognize what, it, what had happened. Yeah. But what did the public say? Well, the public said, you're just opening up to make money. You're just opening up to maintain your revenue. And mm -hmm. so the negative feedback they got from the public sentiment was, was absolutely, you know, it was a tsunami of negative feedback. And so they didn't actually open until the 10th of December. 2016 so you wow. know, it, um so then it never happened uh you know so it took a month and a half before they reopened that ride was dismantled and has never come back again um there was significant you know safety re reviews done at the time so they did all the right things after the fact yeah it was uh, you know the bit that i'm focusing on is the leadership at the moment in time and the decisions that were made at the moment in time um have had far-reaching uh ramifications than I think they even would have expected. And on that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. We're talking with Gavin Freeman today on the topic of psychology and crisis management. We'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at Voice America TRN or twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking about psychology and crisis management with Gavin Freeman. Gavin, lots of uh, great insight there in the first uh, segment. And like I said, I know where uh, uh, Dreamworld is and you know, I know I'm going to have a different thought the next time I see the place. But in your presentation, you were talking about different theories. And one of the theories you talked about was upper echelon theory. What is that? Yeah, so it's an interesting insight around when we first start to look at the way the brain makes decisions under any form of stress or perceptual or pressure or a situation where there's some external uh, adverse event or a stimuli, stimuli that we, we're needing to respond to. Traditionally, we thought we just used basic cognitive, rational thinking, right? That's what we train you to do as a leader. We train you to think logically, cognitively, rationally, gather the data, and then make a decision based on that, on that data. What the upper echelon theory uh, you know, enhances that perspective is to say that we need to consider what are the other characteristics, and these are the more emotional-based characteristics, and not just emotional-based ones, but also kind of the broader characteristics of the individual and how those characteristics can then influence the way we make cognitive decisions. Because there'll be times where you'll sit down and you'll think, why did that person do that? Mm -hmm. Right? It doesn't make sense. That's the language we use. We look and we go, that doesn't make sense. Why did they do that? Yeah. And so some of these, so when we look at cognitive, um, the, the neocortex, the part of our brain that makes cognitive decisions, we know how it works. Look for data, interpret data, right? Now the problem becomes is how do we interpret that data? And this is where the upper echelon characteristics come into play. And they include things like how old we are, 
The older we are, we have different decisions. We have different life experiences. We think about our career experiences and what we've had, our levels of education, our socioeconomic roots, our financial position, and the broader characteristics of the group that we're in. And so we start to take these upper echelon characteristics and we then merge them with our cognitive brain and we go, okay, now we start to get a better picture around why do certain people make decisions in certain circumstances? Where it's, I find this interesting is when there's two types of CEOs. There's the CEO that gets promoted within a business. So they've started off in the mail room and kind of worked their way up and landed as the CEO. That's one kind of pathway, or at least has worked within the industry, their industry all the way through. There's another type of CEO who knows nothing about the business. They're that perennial journey person CEO. You know, they go from one CEO to another and they just bring their CEO characteristics. They potentially know nothing of, about the business. And I've worked with both. And both are very successful for very for different reasons. But we start to see these characteristics started to come through in regards to why are make, people making decisions at different times? It then, when we then merge the two together, it allows the individual to then look into their armory of strategic choices and make a decision that's based on not just a cognitive interpretation, but one that's sort of colored by other factors. The problem with these other factors is they're really hard to measure. They're really hard to see because age is just a, you know, I don't know how old you are and I'm not going to ask, but it doesn't matter. But, you know, it, it sort of it reflects, well, what is it about age that colours out or changes our thinking? What is, it, what is it about our experience or our previous careers or our socioeconomic status or our education? And that's the problem. We don't know. We know they impact, but we just don't know how they impact. So it comes into then trying to understand the, the you know, the bigger picture around, well, what are some of the other factors that, can drive some of these decision makings. And that's where the two other theories that I talked about in my presentation come into play. So within those, we're, we've got a little bit more of an idea. So they, one's called the regulatory theory and the other one's called behavioral agency. Mm -hmm. And we know from a regulatory theory perspective that the way we regulate our brain against um, either um, pleasure or pain. So we know that there are some people who will like to seek pleasure, pleasure-seeking activities, and there are others that want to, that are far more driven by the avoidance of pain. It doesn't mean they don't seek pleasure, it just means they, they further, they're more driven by, I don't want to make a mistake, I don't want to fail, as opposed to, I'm going to have a go at potentially winning the big prize. Is that right? the same as risk-averse, being a risk-averse? Yes. A, a little bit around the, the risk-seeking versus risk-averse. Right. So we know that there are individuals who are far more risk seeking type individuals and there are ones that are far more risk averse. Now, on the surface, that would come across as being pretty simplistic. You know, Alex, you might be risk seeking and I might be risk averse. But then we need to start to look at, well, what 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 impacts on that? What drives that? So let's say, you know, your show is doing really, really well. Right. You're getting you know, your numbers are getting bigger and bigger every week. More people are watching. Right and you're a risk-averse person, you're now going to get in a little bit of conflict because lots more people means maybe you can try something different, have a go down a different pathway, maybe introduce a new topic. But if you're really risk-averse, you're not necessarily going to, or you're going to be torn, you're going to be really you know, challenged in that environment because of you know, your, your positiveness. Now, if, you're, if your show was tanking, well, your risk-averse behavior is probably going to benefit you because you're going to go, right, I'll go back to 
my, my current behavior. But I could also argue you're not going to try something new to get new listeners or followers. Right. So context starts to matter and it starts to give us insight around what is driving these behaviors. But at the core, you are going to be either driven to be risk averse or driven to be risk um, seeking. I often like to refer, I wrote a book called um, Just Stop Motivating Me. And rather than the risk element, I use the motivational element. And so you could also flip it to say, you're motivated to avoid failure as opposed to motivated to succeed. And the fundamental difference between those two mindsets are one is you're looking to, um, you, you, see, you see failure as a stepping stone to future success, as opposed to not wanting to be negatively evaluated by yourselves um, or others. And so there's these two fundamental differences. And that's where we start to see regulatory theory starting to play out, where if you're motivated to succeed, you know, you're going to approach your crisis in a different way to being if you're motivated to avoid failure. And then to really throw the cat among the pigeons, as that famous saying goes, there's this really interesting behavioral agency theory that now comes in and says, actually, none of that matters. The thing that matters is the agency, as in the, the organization, as in the culture, as in the board. So if the board sets the tone of we're a risk-averse company, well, then the CEO and the executives are, are going to follow suit. So behavioral agency says, look, the board, but it, and here's where it kind of gets all a little bit confusing. So I don't want to kind of burden people with all the theory. Suffice to say, there's lots of ways to just look at the situation. Um, but the theory would also maintain that a risk-averse board is going to appoint a risk-averse CEO. That is just going to follow. Why would a risk-averse board put on a Richard Branson or an Elon Musk style person, if what they if that person is just going to go off and do a million things, you know, and and try and aim for the, the Mars rather than just trying to, you know, get yeah. somewhere on the planet. So between the two theories, though, it helps us when we go into teams and helps us build and develop the nature of the way we want to support the team. So if I know you're driven by your regulatory theory, or if I know you're driven by your agency, I can then support you in different ways. So how does that come across in a crisis situation then? You so know, often the only way to determine you know, how we yeah. talk with the media, how we communicate with employees, or how do we not talk with impacted families, like the, the example you gave. Yeah. In the, um, the, the way we can really only, so there's two ways to measure it. One's a little harder than the other. The two ways to measure it are around looking at the, you know, the speed and the, and the execution of the decisions that are made which is very difficult to measure. So how do you measure a decision? Uh, you know, I decided to do A versus B, but you can't see the decision-making process. You can just see the outcome. Mm. You know, I, I, I went to the black shirt, you went with the white shirt, right? Something in the backs of our heads kind of worked that through. The one though that we, excuse me, the one we can measure or at least observe is language. So we see risk averse or motivated to avoid failure people individuals use what we call preventative language, whereas um, the more motivated to succeed or you know, risk-seeking people tend to use more performance-based language. And so this gets then seen through, and there's lots of research out on this, and they've done lots of research on US president's speeches and state of the nation speeches. They've looked at you know, um, individuals during crisis, looking at their commentary coming through, and we can clearly see this. So we see this kind of preventative language, things, words like prevent, protect, 
safety, security, threat, vigilance, obligation, accuracy, um, avoid, anxiousness, those kind of words, as opposed to your more performance-based words around momentum, obtain, optimistic, progress, promoting, speed, advancement, uh, desire, earn. Those are just a few simple uh, ones that sort of come off the top of my head. Um, so we definitely see the language that, that comes out um, from organizations and from executives when they're in front of the media and they're promoting themselves, we see different language. And that's usually a good indicator of where the organization is, is coming from and where they likely, the pathway they're likely to follow going forward. But if they're talking, uh, you know, using either, either one of the language, the uh, performance or the uh, preventative language, is that on behalf of the organization or is it the person? who's behaving that way. And this is where regulatory versus behavioral agency theory will start to help out. So, you know, when I look at it, when I go and work with, a, with an organization, the first thing that I will do is spend time with their CEO to understand the way that they operate, understand how they naturally speak. And then when you see them in a crisis, you'll then start to see whether there's a disconnect. Mm -hmm. um, You'll also try to get a sense of meeting with the board and understand, you know, the, the language the board uses. And you would, I would always go and look at previous scenarios around situations, what commentaries come out from the board. Um, we have some companies that have got very high profile board members and some that have got far lower profile board members. I would look at the way they would naturally speak. So you can get a sense of the person's natural state. And then when it comes out, it's very clear. And you can see, you can absolutely look, if you know what you're looking for, you can absolutely see the discomfort in a risk-averse CEO being forced to speak in a risk-seeking way because that's the directive the board wants to go. You can, you can see it. There is this thing called congruency. The, the brain always strives for congruency. So it's that simple one. If, if I said to you, Alex, put your head down um, and I want you to you know, pretend you're being punched in the gut and I want you to pretend and I want you to think to yourself, I am an absolute winner. I am the best interviewer on the planet. But I want you to sit there kind of looking miserable. Your body's going to go, this is wrong. This feels yeah. wrong, right? And we do the other way around. If I said to you, your shoulders back nice and proud and think to yourself, I'm a complete loser. Again, over time, that congruency is what the brain will always go for. We, we tend to want to reflect what we're thinking. And so when we see that disconnect happening, we see the discomfort coming through. In people, I see the discomfort in the back room when I'm working with CEOs during a crisis and they're having to make decisions. They longer, they take longer to make decisions when there's a disconnect. They're not confident in their decision making when there's a disconnect. Um, they're not confident in, in their team when they're not having kind of commentary coming through to them. So there are so many factors that you wouldn't see playing out, but we see in the back end um, and we can actually work with groups to help them enhance and improve on that. You, you just mentioned an interesting point where they're they're waiting for information from teams. Does their behavior behavior um, and uh, you know based on the theories you just mentioned also affect the people that are around them uh, on what you know it, it, using yourself and, and myself yeah. as an example? If you're one way and I've got information to give you and you behave a certain way, you communicate a certain way, but I need to give you some really hard information that's happened. Does that have an impact on me, how I'm presenting to that person as well? Like, does it trickle on down? You know what I mean? It, uh, you know, the, the tone is often set by the lead at the top, whether the lead's the CEO or at least the you know, senior executive. Uh, look, absolutely. I've, I've run multiple simulations 
where I've seen leads completely and CEOs completely diminish the impact of their team by simply saying, it's my way and I'm deciding, regardless of the input coming in. Highly effective teams um, effectively remove rank, right? I have a particular theory that I apply to this. Um, it's, it's, I don't know where I got it from, but it's my definition of value. You know, the only reason I want you in the room with me, if I'm a CEO and I'm managing a crisis, the only reason I want you in the room with me is if you can provide value. And the value is made up of two core, comp- two core variables, insight and tension. If you're not giving me a version of those two things, you're not helping me. Well, I, I've seen many definitions of value. I have never seen one that has the word tension. What Absolutely. does tension mean in that? So in that space, you know, the insight is you're the expert on doing what you're doing, right? So give me your expertise. But then the tension might be, you know, uh, we're doing this interview now. The tension element might be um, at the end, giving me some feedback on the way I communicated, the speed in which I spoke, the um, tone, what I was wearing, glasses, hair, you know, the, 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 those extra echelon variables that don't necessarily aren't first thing. So, you know, I, you could walk out of today and just go, thanks a lot, that's great. Or you could walk out of today and go, thanks a lot, that's great. You know, here's a, bit of, here's a little bit of feedback, here's some tips, here's some things that I can think of. So that's in a simple example. For me, tension is around recognising when we need to sometimes stress test an idea. So I've seen executives who completely agree with the CEO and they take on that classic Edward de Bono black hat mindset and go, can we just play devil's advocate for a second here? I just want to challenge your thinking. I want to make sure that you've considered all of the elements. So tension could be a simple quality check, or it could be, I think there's another option here. And as far as going, actually, I think you're wrong. So mm-hmm. in a crisis environment, if you're not adding some insight and some tension, you're not adding value. That's interesting. I, I, I saw that at your presentation. And went, I have never seen that before. What the heck does he mean by that? I should trademark it then, huh? Yeah, you should. I've never seen it before. <laughs> On that note, we've come to the end of our second segment. We are talking about psychology and crisis management with Gavin Freeman, and we will be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voiceamerica. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking about psychology and crisis management with Gavin Freeman. Gavin, great second segment there, especially when you were talking about value um, and tension. Uh, How can we use that tension? going forward in a crisis or maybe even outside of a crisis, but how can we use that going forward? So, so the first thing we need to do is recognize that it exists. You know, when I use the word tension, a lot of people sort of go, oh, that's, that's a bad word. It's a negative word. It's a negative connotation. But in fact, it's not. 
Um, and I think the more we can bring it in that, you know, that those conversations that we can have to ensure that we're adding value, uh, the more effective we're going to be. I think the starting point for most groups and most organizations is you do need to get to understand your CEO and your executives that are involved in a crisis. My experience tells me, you know, you're lucky if you maybe get them once a year for a, for a, some sort of a tabletop desktop exercise those are a complete waste of time. I'm sorry for those of you who run them. A desktop exercise with a CEO is an absolute waste of time if you really want to understand the way they make decisions under pressure and the way they respond. Um, they're great for just ticking boxes to say, yes, we've got a plan and we've done the plan and the auditors want that. I'm happily accept that. So we need to understand our CEOs. We've got to be able to, just, and, the, and the rest of the exec team that's involved, we've got to get on their radar more often. We've got to speak to them. We've got to ask them questions. We've got to pose situations to them and, and see what they think. So the first thing is the, the once a year or once every second year type tabletop exercise has got to be supplemented with some more stuff. That's, that's an absolute. Now, that, the challenge in that is saying, how do we now get it on the agenda of the CEO? The, the, the good thing we've seen out of COVID is that Crisis management, pandemic management, all forms of risk management have significantly been increased in the eyes of the board and of the executive. Yeah. So we know that. It's time to capitalise on that. It really is. We need to get out there. We need to um, demonstrate. And this is, I'm speaking out to those, you know, crisis managers, the BCM managers, all those individuals who are sort of hold the accountability of this, this um, project, this product project in the business. Um, we've got to capitalise. And right now, Cyber attacks and ransomware is what I'm doing every day of the week. And the boards are concerned about it. CEOs are concerned about it. So that gets me in front of them on a regular basis. Um, so have some, have a hook, have some reason to be able to speak to your board right now. You know, 2021, it's ransomware. Two years ago, it was the active aggressor threats. Who knows where it's going to be in a couple of years time. Second thing we can do is we can actually start to look at the language. So I can go and review um, you know, commentary. I'll often go and watch CEOs speaking. I'll, I'll look at them in speaking in positive sides of things. So my, my favorite I always do is I'll go and watch how a CEO presents at their annual general meeting in, you know, when times are going really well. Hey, we've had a bumpy year. We've made all these millions of dollars. You listen to their language. You then go and look at a time where they may be fronting the media around something that didn't go really well. Look at their language there. If there's a disconnect between the language, it's a little flag that needs to go off to, to for you to say, I've got to understand why. What's the, what's the language? There should be consistency, even though the words will be different, but there should be consistency in tone. Probably the biggest thing that I've found that's been useful for CEOs is to run them through not just scenarios, but real life scenarios where we do, uh, you know, we do a real life activation. So we launch something into a business and we actually watch it percolate through the business. We see it happening in real time. Um, we don't allow, I, I've, I, I, right up now, unless there's a very good reason for it, I very rarely will run a tabletop exercise. Mine are always going to be a scenario-based exercise where I'm going to put you under the pressure. I'm going to put you under the pump. I'm going to make you feel what's going on because I want to see how you respond. The other way to do that is to do a review session. And so what we do with review sessions is we run them like scenarios except the difference here is a scenario is a made up scenario. A review session is when we take an actual real life event that's happened to another company and we put that in front of the executive and say, this happened to 
this person or this organization, it's the same industry as you, same business as you, what would you do if it was yours? So they then get to see the decisions made from others. So mm -hmm. those couple of, there's a few other little bits and pieces, but that kind of start is understand them, build them, and then have these scenarios and review sessions are um, incredibly powerful. And the, my, my feedback to, to those of you who sort of never done a review session or, or you can't get them to do the scenario is it, push for it because my feedback to me has always been when the CEOs feel like they've got value out of it, they want to do more. Um, particularly the review sessions where they look and they, because it's a little bit protected. It's Alex stuffed up, not Gavin. So now let me look at what Alex did and why Alex stuffed up, not what I'm doing and why I stuffed up, because if I learn from Alex. Um, so I think that's kind of our starting point. Mm. There's a few other little bits and pieces that I think we can do as, see, as, as you know, in this space. We can share insights from other organizations. So the conferences and the like, those are always really helpful. Um, and the last thing I would say to you is don't be scared to get external specialists in. So in my team, we have, um, we call them special operations groups. So in America, they call them the SWAT team in, I don't know what they call them in the UK, but you know, it's, the, it's generally those, those very scary men and women in black with black helmets on, they come in, yep. Um, special, we get media specialists in, we get cyber coaches in, we bring uh, medical doctors in. So we will often bring in the specialists to give them the guidance and provide them with the absolute, this is what it happens. When the pandemic launched, when the launch, when the pandemic hit, um, one of our members of our team is an emergency doctor. He's never been so busy in our business. There were times where he was going, I've got to get back to the hospital now, guys, I'm sorry. So he was dealing with case crisis in the hospital, but he was coming in and, and talking to our clients around what this disease looks like, what you'll experience, not what you saw in the newspaper, not what you've seen in the media. Here's an ED doctor telling you what's going to happen. Um, so I think those kind of snippets can hopefully be helpful for companies and for individuals who are trying to get their CEOs and the executive teams you know, up to scratch. What about CEOs or executive teams that really don't want to face those fears? You know, they... they they, they would rather, and I've run into them, I'm sure you have too, yeah. we'll deal with it when it happens. Yeah. So, look, they're hard. And for me, we, on occasion, we've been asked to come in and do what, what we call the what keeps you up at night session or mm -hmm. the worst case scenario session. The good thing is most CEOs or at least most public companies will have to do a risk mitigation process. So they'll look at the risks in their business. But they tend to look at the risks in their business around um, actual risks around financial risk or they don't tend to look at risks around when things go completely pear-shaped. That generally doesn't make it onto a risk register. So we need to do these other kind of worst case scenarios. Um, if you really have a, a belligerent group that doesn't want to engage, this is where a review of here's what happened somewhere else can be, mm. can be quite confronting. Um, I know one client who just would never be able to get the CEO involved. And um, the way we got them there was we took articles and things that had happened to another organization in the same industry. We put the CEO's name into the article. We sent it to him and we said, how would you feel if this was real? And, uh, and they got a phone call in an hour saying, what the hell is this? And how do we fix this? Because this is never happening to me. And we went, great, we'll fix it. 
give us an hour in about a month's time. And they did. And it's progressed from there. So I think there's ways. Sometimes, you know, sometimes the soft, softly approach is not going to work. Sometimes we do need to put something right in front of their faces and say, have a look at this. This is not good if this were to happen to you. Scare or a shock. Yeah, there is a, I think there's a time for that shock value. Not always, but I think there's a moment if you really have a group that is stuck, the only way to unstick them is to shock them. <laughs> we only have two minutes left. Do you have any final thoughts? Take a minute for any final thoughts you want to convey. Yeah, don't look, don't set and forget. Continually to continually iterate on, on your plans, continually iterate on your the way you do things. Um, make sure you include all of your alternates. Most organizations only ever train their primary team. So get the alternate team. You know, mm. make sure everybody in the business, not just the, the crisis team, actually understands you have a crisis process. It's amazing how many businesses I go to where you'll talk to the, a front-end service person and who says, I have no idea. A quick example, and then I'll, I'll finish it up. We ran a, um, a, a scenario where, just a scenario, where the police were turning up with a warrant. And so the crisis team knew exactly what to do with the warrant. They were arresting a person. They knew exactly how to manage that. You know what they forgot to do? Check the protocol of what happens when a police officer turns up at the reception and says to the receptionist, here's a warrant. You now need to let me in the building. The receptionist had no idea what to do. There was a process and a policy. They had never seen it. It had never been discussed, never trained. So extend your crisis management out to your entire business. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah, you never, anything can happen at any time. You can't assume everybody's available all the time. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. On that note, we've come to the end of the show. Uh, Gavin, thank you so much for this. Um, I, I thought the topic was really interesting. Uh, like I said, during one of our breaks, I've really been interested in this psychology of disasters brought on, you know, mostly by COVID. So I really found this uh, interesting. And I love the piece about tension. Thank you. So, uh, you know, I, and I'm going to go look at uh, your book too, because I like that one. Was it uh, Motivate? Just stop, just stop motivating me. Just stop motivating me. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I'd like to, I, I think I'm going to track that down. I might have you back again to talk about that. So, More than happy to have a chat about it. <laughs> so thank you so much. Uh, have a great day and everybody listening and watching. Stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.